Good morning, uh, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure, no problem. Let me just ask you, is this, uh, we're doing the video, but uh, you're recording the audio for the podcast. Is that right? Or... Yes, exactly so. As casual as you'd like to be. Welcome listeners to another edition of the Slavic Connection. I'm Zach Johnson from Southern California. I'm here today for my very first interview, and I'm excited to have on Matthew Luxmore. Matthew is a correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, has written a variety of pieces related to all things Russia and the former Soviet Union. Today we discuss the Russian Far East, other topical issues of the day in Russia, and of course, the US election. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, I'd love to start by having you give our listeners just a, a brief overview of your academic and obviously professional background and ultimately how you ended up with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Sure. Well, I guess uh, journalists in this part of the world, in Russia at least, uh, Western journalists, they come to they either come to Russia through journalism or they come to, to to journalism through Russia. So I think mine was definitely the kind of second path. I mean, I first came to Russia almost almost a decade ago now, in February 2011, to to, to teach English like a lot of young you know men from uh, the US or the UK. I was kind of I'd essentially quit the degree I was studying for in English literature in, the, in, in London and just decided to, you know, try something completely new because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do in my life. So I thought Russia is kind of a good place to go to, to, you know, find some of those answers. At least, you know, that's what I thought at the time. Uh, I didn't speak any Russian, but I did speak Polish because my, my, my mother's Polish and I spent my first 11 years in Poland. So I don't know, maybe there was some kind of Slavic connection or something like that. <laughs> or grow, growing up as a kid in Poland, you know, Russia was um, always this kind of, you know, this kind of hulking Eastern neighbor. So I don't know, perhaps there was some kind of fascination. People ask me why Russia. And I, I tend to kind of go back to that as maybe some kind of subconscious fascination from childhood. But anyway, I mean, Russia was always this interesting place, kind of a mystery, and I just wanted to get away from it. Also, I went to Russia, started teaching English, and just completely fell in love with the place in probably kind of an unhealthy way, uh, where I just felt like this is the place I want to be. I love everything about it. I guess Russia maybe has that effect on a lot of people when they first come here, because it really, you know, people live in the moment. There's a lot of things to really like about Russia. I mean, especially if you have kind of a more privileged uh, existence than a lot of other people living here, right? So I decided that I like Russia so much that I'm going to study for a philosophy degree here at, at MGU because I just want to stay here. You know, this was kind of a slightly confusing time in my life because I just quit the first degree. So I decided to um, to go to MGU and I started uh, all kinds of you know negotiations with the philosophy department. They told me I have to pass the entrance exam called YEGE. And on the second attempt after studying Russian, you know, kind of uh, immersively for two weeks in, in Poland, just from textbooks and, um, you know, trying my best to brush up on the little Russian I had uh, I had acquired just from speaking to people in Moscow, you know, half Polish, half Russian, probably. I came back to, to Moscow that August and I, I passed the exam. But anyway, um, to cut a long story short, I only ended up studying there for a month. Partly because I just couldn't drum up the money to pay for the degree. 
um, and partly because um, I just realised uh, this is kind of a ridiculous path to be taking in my life. I should probably go back to the UK, be sensible about my future and, uh, you know, start a new degree. So that's what I did. I went back to the UK, started a new degree in international relations. The second year of which I'd spent in Germany kind of doing a journalism internship in Berlin, which also kind of, you know, whet my appetite for more journalism. That was after a summer in Moscow during the first and second years of my degree, because in England we have three three undergraduate degrees. So between the first and second years, I went back to Moscow. I interned for the Moscow Times, which was also a great experience. Then the internship in Berlin. And so by the time my third year, my final year of university was over in the UK, I was pretty, I was pretty uh, set on, on, on journalism and I was pretty set on, on journalism in Russia. But obviously then, as you know, this was 2014, um, Russia just annexed Crimea. I was watching all these developments um, from the library in, in London as I was trying to finish my dissertation, trying to stop myself from quitting my second degree just to go out and, uh, and go to Ukraine. Um, so I decided, I decided to go to Ukraine um, and I got in touch with the, um, the Kiev Post, with the editor there. And the day after my final exam, I flew to, I flew to Kiev and uh, started working there. And I spent four months in Ukraine kind of honing my very basic journalism skills at the time. Then I did a master's in the US, and then I came back to Russia to report full-time, really. So I've been here for the last four years, one year on a fellowship with the New York Times, and then I guess two, over just over two years now at, at, at RFERL. So yeah, I guess that's, that brings us up to the present moment. So I, I came to your work, obviously, via Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, and I was fascinated by your coverage of the Russian Far East. Typically in the Western media here, it's it's obviously a, a bipolar world in terms of journalism. We, we receive coverage from St. Petersburg or out of Moscow. And so I was fascinated, and I'd love to start with, with your work in the Russian Far East. Hector program, which I was unfamiliar with, I had seen things out of the Ministry for the Development of the Russian Far East before, but but this was all new to me. And I'd love for you to just, you know, firstly, how you think the program is functioning, the Russian Far East sector program and, and economic development in the Russian Far East more generally. Sure. I mean, it was a fascinating story to do. You know, Russia's Russia's a huge country. So any chance to to explore the length and breadth is, um, you know, obviously a, a, a privilege. You know, my sense in Habarovsk, uh, at least in the region that I that I visited, the program hasn't quite lived up to expectations. I mean, it was quite ambitious. For the government, I think, to expect a lot of Russians living in cozy Moscow or, you know, in other parts of much more hospitable European Russia to move to the Far East, you know, to settle these um, kind of unruly climbs, part, parts of the country. So uh, the program hasn't quite done as well as the government um, expected. In fact, I think only around 80,000 Russians have actually uh, applied and been granted hectares of land as part of the program which probably means a lot more than 80,000 hectares because a lot of uh, people got more than one hectare or they applied for members of their family. But it's been, I think, much more of a disappointment than uh, than the government expected. So what we get is we get a lot of these locals, like the two locals, um, Habar- natives of the city of Habaras, which is the capital of that region, who took advantage of the program to build second homes, um, to move away from the city, you know, to make honey or to cultivate tea or whatever else they do, kind of have a second 
a second patch of land that they can get away to. You know, dachas are very, very popular in Russia. You know, it's kind of a real Russian tradition. So this was kind of a way of acquiring free land to, to build uh, what you have yourself, to build something that you can um, spend your weekends on or whatever. The problem with that is, you know, obviously under, under the rules of the program, you have to prove after five years. I guess there are regular checks throughout those five years, but after a period of five years, you have to prove that you've more or less used the land in accordance with the plans that you initially laid out in your application. So there have been reports uh, of, of some, some people who first acquired acres towards the end of 2016 when the program first started, who are now kind of battling in court to retain that land. There's one case, I think, in the Amur region. I don't, I don't think these, these cases are very widespread, but there was some fear among some of the Far East Hector recipients that I spoke to that, you know, they have to, they have to be seen to be developing the land in some ways in order to, in order to retain it after a period of five years. But I think, you know, cases of the government actually seizing land Obviously, we're not at the stage yet where the five years have passed for the vast majority of the people who have received that land on the program. I think those kinds of cases are probably going to be very few and far between. I don't think the government has a huge interest in seizing back a lot of the land. But I think, I mean, broadly speaking, I think the program was announced with a lot of fanfare a few years ago. And I think it hasn't, you know, it hasn't matched expectations. But there are plans now to expand it. So we'll see how that goes in the next few years. You know, we've seen in, in various reporting, we've seen in, in your reporting as well, President Putin called the development of the Russian Far East the, the national priority for the 21st century. And I'm certainly curious, was there any form of oversight with the program on the ground that you saw while you were there or that was spoken to you from, from the locals or those who were taking advantage of the program? Or was did it seem to be somewhat of a, a free-for-all self-reporting type situation? No, I mean, there are various ministries in the Far East. In, in each region, there is a Far East Hector program branch. Officials who actually coordinate the allocation of land, the particular patch, well, it's probably more than a patch, the, the, the kind of swathe of land that I visited where there are lots of Far East Hector recipients, most of whom aren't doing anything with the land. It's been joined to Habarovsk by a pretty nice road. And there, there, there's also all kinds of developments around that particular swathe of land. So there's a new road kind of connecting the plots of land. So I think the government is doing something with it. I mean, it's definitely a high profile and based on Putin's words, at least a high priority program as well. I mean, Russia has tried to kind of make this clear in the piece as well. I mean, Russia has so much land. A lot of it is uninhabited, but in the far east, at least, it's fertile, good land. And, um, you know, I think it's definitely, this is a good way to to kind of mobilize people to to use that land. And I think a lot of Russian patriots, like one of the men I spoke to, you know, believes that more people should be doing this because this is kind of part of our duty to, to work in the Far East as well. I think a lot of Russians are, are wondering why they're not using the land more than, than, than they could be. But obviously the population is, you know, a, a small fraction of the population of the areas across the border in China. So there just aren't enough people really to, to cultivate our land the, the way it could be cultivated. In Western journalism, we certainly get a sense that for natives on the ground and locals on the ground in the Russian Far East, there's a, a contentious and even the antagonistic relationship with the Chinese and the massive Chinese population. Did you get that sense as well on the ground that there's this worry or is that kind of propagandistic kind of cultivated in the Western media? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to simplify too much because I didn't look into this, but I think no one said to me, you know, 
we need to get these Chinese out, you know, they're going to be taking over, you know, Russia's Far East. I didn't get any of that. I know that there have been protests in parts of Russia, for instance, in Irkutsk region, there is one village where I think there were clashes. I can't remember the name of the village. So there have been kind of you know, there have been incidents in the past, but I think there's probably for most people it's kind of a maybe a relationship of mutual convenience. There there probably is some grumbling and I mean a lot of the people, some of the people I spoke to were kind of a little bit more annoyed at the government that, you know, we you're not creating opportunities for Russians on the ground. But I definitely didn't sense any kind of antagonism or any any kind of uh, you know, bitterness among among locals to it. But again, I didn't travel to speak to, you know, Chinese workers or to the areas where, where they were working. The story that's been reaching us here of continuous protests in the region, and I guess to us in the West and, and to others, it's it's come as sort of a shock to see such sustained protest. Uh, usually we tend to associate Russian protest with maybe the educated, uh, the urban, the Moscovite, those in St. Petersburg. And, and I'd love to get your opinion on why the protests have really taken on such a sustained and have really sparked such a profound period of unrest in the region. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the main reason for the longevity of the protests is just that these people have been ignored. I mean, they feel you know that no one, no one really, no one really gives a damn. I mean, officials in Moscow certainly don't give the impression that they do. So, in the hope that they'll fizzle out, and then obviously, sometime after the protests started, uh, the, the the much more violent unrest in Belarus started, which spooked the Kremlin, which I think made them seriously consider changing attitudes to Habarovsk. But they also saw that you know. Khabarovsk is such a far-flung part of Russia. It didn't really spark any serious protests in other parts of Russia. So I think they just, I think they concluded that, you know, we can just let it keep going and people will get bored of it because they're not going to be achieving any results. You know, Furgal is still in Moscow. He hasn't been sent back to Khabarovsk as the protesters demanded in their tens of thousands initially and now in, in, in their hundreds, if the protests will even continue, I guess we'll see. So I think now after the crackdown, it will be interesting to see if people will continue coming out. My guess is they, they, they will. But, you know, it would also be interesting whether the crackdown will, will galvanize some, some of the protesters in Habarovsk, as, you know, a lot of crackdowns um, tend to do, right? I mean, we saw that in Ukraine's Maidan revolution in Belarus, that even larger numbers of people came out once, um, once, once the authorities started using force. I mean, I say I doubt that there are probably large enough numbers in Habarovsk right now of people who would be willing to risk, uh, you know, long prison sentences in order to come out for a protest that they've seen themselves hasn't really provoked other protests or a huge amount of solidarity in other parts of Russia. So I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Living in Moscow, have you been able to get a sense of the Western, in terms of Russia, the, the Moscovite reaction to the protests in Habarovsk? as opposed to maybe previous protests, the winter protests. Is there a different feeling or kind of attitude towards protests in this faraway region? Back in July, there, there, was, there was a lot of discussion of it. I think among the opposition, it was perhaps topic number one. This is, you know, before Navalny's poisoning, of course. They were obviously watching it very carefully and seeing, you know, uh, what interest there is in other regions to come out in solidarity protests. But interestingly enough, the Navalny team in, in Habarovsk region, they were quite, uh, and I spoke to the coordinator when I was there, they were quite quite careful not to be seen to be leading the protests or 
not to be seen to be hijacking the protests because they they felt that there was already enough kind of uh, grassroots mobilization for it. There was enough interest among you know normal Habarask residents, at least initially, to come out and you know protest against the idea that they were just being ignored and that their votes were just being completely um, flagrantly ignored by Moscow. So they didn't want to be seen to kind of be hijacking this whole movement. And they're obviously, I think, looking ahead to the parliamentary elections next year, rather than, I think, perhaps, you know, harming their reputation as well in trying to to forcibly take over um, local movements. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's just my sense from speaking to some of the opposition in, in Habarovsk about the protests. On a final note on the Russian Far East, do you get the sense, whether it's talking to those in Moscow or during your time in the region, that there is, to the extent that you can determine this, a unique political identity to those in the Russian Far East and the protests have taken on a unique form relative to other Russian protests. I think it's been a question here of whether these are can be fall into line and maybe it's the political scientists in me, but whether they can be categorized mm-hmm. as similar to other Russian protests of, of, of the past decade. That's a good question. I mean, I've seen a lot of, I've seen this mentioned many, many times, usually without explanation, right? Um, you know, uh, this <laughs> sure. is a, it's a unique uh, Far Eastern identity, which isn't really yes. very often unpacked. My biggest sense, um, and I've covered protests in Arhangelsk as well, um, just off the top of my head, um, and other, you know, I guess further flung uh, parts of Russia, they probably wouldn't like me calling it this way, but, you know, parts quite far removed from Moscow. And I think there's an identity that connects them to Habarovsk, and um, I, I don't know if you'd call it an identity, but the attitude is Moscow is far away and Moscow doesn't care. So if there's any kind of identity, I'd say, at least political identity, I'd, I'd say that's the most, that's the strongest thing that came through for me. And if, 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 if that is a key part of this political identity, and I don't think it's unique to the Far East, I think it's uh, unique to a lot of um, regions in what is a very large country, a lot of regions that are far from Moscow, and they just get the sense that Moscow is more interested in uh, ensuring that they're stable politically and don't protest than ensuring that they, you know, uh, get the political demands that, they, that they're coming out into the streets for. So uh, that was my sense most of all in Barosk. You know, there were a lot of slogans about Moscow not, not caring about us. Um, you know, and obviously the, the, the protests quickly shifted to a denunciation of Putin and the Kremlin and the kinds of slogans that um, I think surprised a lot of people that you wouldn't expect in the Far East. You might expect in Moscow, from an activist who is going to be quickly detained um, after coming out to the streets, but you wouldn't expect it so much in Habarovsk. So I think, um, you know, maybe radicalized isn't, isn't the right word, but they definitely shifted to a more aggressive denunciation of, of Putin personally once there was this widespread sense that just that Moscow isn't listening. I think that angered a lot of people. On another, maybe not so positive note, the ecological disasters uh, and environmental issues facing really greater Siberia and also, again, the Russian Far East. And this is another issue where I think there's kind of a disconnect uh, between us here and what, what we perceive, maybe how it's reported in Russia or how activists in Russia. Is there an environmental movement or, or really a grassroots environmental movement in Russia that's worthy of note and that takes note of issues like the Siberian forest fires or uh, the reporting RFE did uh, in Kamchatka of what could possibly be jet fuel contaminating the water. Yeah, um, Green Greenpeace is very active and Russia has a very active Russian branch. Beyond that, I think 
there are many grassroots activists in the regions, um, ecological activists, and I, I presume their numbers are growing. There, you know, this this fr- fr- the Fridays for Future movement has um, quite a few activists in Moscow, including one young activist who keeps coming out on a regular basis um, in central Moscow and has who was just detained recently. I think he's he comes out on a regular basis. So I think I, I, I expect the movement will grow. But the Russian government it definitely doesn't speak as if this is a priority issue. I think uh, it's only recently coming to shift its attitude and to really speak pretty m- m- more forcibly about climate change. I think that was at the beginning of this year, they released... Um, a government document that also spoke of how Russia can actually harness the advantages of climate change, including, you know, melting permafrost and these kinds of things, which I think surprised some activists. But I think a lot of people also thought that at least the government is now speaking about it and speaking about climate change, which is already a big change. But I think, I mean, Russia, you know, is going to be in the years to come a huge focus for anyone interested and concerned about climate change because it's the world's largest country. A huge part of it is covered in permafrost, which is melting. So it it will become a bigger and bigger issue. And I think Russia will be definitely at the forefront of discussions. And there's a lot of really outstanding reporting covering this issue. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more to come as this issue just becomes more and more. When, for example, the the oil spill in Norilsk was reported uh, last, I believe it was last May, was there kind of national concern around an issue like this or even outside of state media or did it tend to kind of just float right over the kind of the national consciousness and, and move on to other issues? I just I ask because we do do tend to see Russia as somewhat of a black hole. And is there even kind of this national consciousness of of what's going on, whether it be the, the forest fires or an oil spill? Or Yeah, I mean, I think that consciousness is slowly developing. Um, you know, you see it with other things, a completely unrelated topic, but for instance, domestic violence in Russia. There is a, there is a growing consciousness of this developing. And, I, you know, just in the past four years, it's something that you know, I, I have noticed. With climate change, I think it's probably not, perhaps not at the same stage yet, but I think there is a lot of reporting on it in the media. I'm not sure about state media. I think it also does report on these issues, but um, especially in, you know, Nova Gazeta reports the, um, the kind of... Um, more opposition-minded independent um, newspaper reports on it very actively. The other independent media outlets, uh, which are, you know, read across Russia, reported very actively on the Norilsk uh, spill. So I, I think people are aware of it, I'd say, across Russia. I just think that at the moment, especially with the pandemic, people just have other concerns. So, you know, real wages have been dropping, I think, you know, for, for, the, for the past six years. And people, uh, you know, bre- bread and butter issues are just much more important for Russians right now than worrying about the climate, which I guess, you know, being very concerned about the climate is in some ways you could even call it kind of a more privileged position because you have time to think about it. And I think a lot of people in Russia probably just don't really have time and maybe they don't have the interest to think about it either. But I, as we see more and more incidents like Kamchatka, Norils, um, and other incidents, uh, you know, Krasnoyarsk, there was another alleged oil spill in the past couple of months. And obviously, as you mentioned, the huge, unprecedented forest fires um, in Sahara Republic this year. You know, this will be more and more of a topic of discussion, I, I expect, and people, people won't be able to not notice it. It's, it's certainly something that has its parallels to the states yeah. here.
you know, maybe from California myself, it was an issue that was seen as elitist and coastal. And then, you know, with, with the growth and the prevalence of forest fires in California over the past five years, it's become more of a, a mainstream issue and people have had to deal with it. So it is interesting to see those parallels because there was certainly the same, a similar sentiment, falling wages in the U.S. and now the pandemic, but then with the reemergence of these forest, forest fires, it's, it's become a, a top tier issue again. Moving on to, to other issues, and in the past years, we've in the West, we've certainly seen um, with the passing of Mr. Nemtsov, uh, we've seen Mr. Navalny and his poisoning. Are there other figures, maybe uh, Ilya Yashin or other opposition figures that, that we should really be aware of, maybe potentially up and coming figures that, that don't reach the Western media or our Western consciousness? I think a very interesting figure is um, the head of um, the Doctors' Alliance trade union. Anastasia Vasilieva, she's a young 35-year-old eye specialist who runs a trade union which now has um, branches in 45 regions, according to their website. And, you know, is, is, is growing in number. They just had a, a, a kind of um, open day in St. Petersburg and a, a lot of doctors came. And she, for the past two years almost, she's been traveling the country, visiting hospitals, demanding higher wages for doctors um, and really being a huge thorn in the side to the Kremlin. So she's, I think, one activist, uh, you know, aside from the usual suspects, so to speak, you know, Ilya Yashin Lyubov Sobol, who made a very big name for herself last year during the uh, Moscow protests, um, you know, against exclusion of opposition candidates from the um, city council elections when she staged a hunger strike um, her and her, you know, other Navalny aides were, were fined. So she was, she's certainly, you know, a, a big name today as well. But I think Vasilieva is, um, there has been a lot of coverage of her in the Western media, but largely through the um, prism of um, the coronavirus coverage in Russia. Not so much as a separate opposition activist who is running a trade union which is backed by Navalny and, you know, gets a lot of kind of informational support from Navalny, so to speak. They, they, they record their shows in the same studios and uh, they're backed by Navalny. But at the same time, they function very independently. Uh, they don't like to link themselves to Navalny and uh, their operation is completely separate. They, they plan their trips separately. So I think they, they would definitely want to watch um, based on uh, their statements. And, um, you know, obviously with doctors, with doctors are not receiving the, bon the bonuses, a lot of doctors not receiving bonuses that Putin promised them in exchange in compensation for their work with COVID patients. Um, there's a lot of perhaps growing disillusionment um, among healthcare workers, and that might drive them uh, towards, you know, a trade union like Vasilios. That could be a very interesting development to watch. Now, turning to another area of your coverage, I think there was an, an immediate expectation of the collapse of the Lukashenko government. What is your expectations for the protests and for the Lukashenko regime more broadly going forward? That's a tough one. I mean, I think Lukashenko is in a, in a stronger position, obviously, than he was in um, in mid-August when you know two and over two hundred thousand people came out into the streets of Minsk, and it really looked to a lot of people like his days were numbered. The next, the following uh, Monday, he came to meet striking factory workers in Minsk who heckled him and chanted "Leave" at him, and you know, you just really got the sense then that it could be over for him. Then Russia shifted from very much standing back and I think watching the situation to actively backing Lukashenko. 
that prompted at least uh, some people, in, you know, maybe a large part of the opposition activists to maybe not be disillusioned with Russia, but understand that the Russia has kind of chosen its side in this conflict. So it, it looks a little, more, a little more like kind of an EU-Russia standoff today than it did at the beginning. But it never was that, I think, definitely not to the extent that Ukraine was. And it still, I don't think, can't be, can't be seen that way. How long and whether Lukashenko will hang on is, is obviously hard to say. I think he's in a much better position. The people around him, his security apparatus, um, a lot of there, there have been defections, but these haven't been on any large scale. So they've largely, um, they've largely remained remain loyal to him. But that's my understanding, watching things from Moscow and speaking to, to, to our colleagues um, there. We have a big Belarus service, which has really been doing a great job. Um, and has also been a lot of a lot, a lot of those journalists for RFI have been have been detained in Belarus as well. So it's kind of a precarious position, and it continues to be so. Even you know what is it now? You know, three months after the election. And finally, it's an issue I've been happy to avoid, but domestic politics here in the United States, there was certainly considered the most contentious election, at least in my thirty years. Um, I'm curious how the election. Uh, more broadly, and and also the candidates themselves are are being perceived by maybe your your average Moscovite just in your conversations, whether it's on the streets or in a cafe, and and what the perceptions are of of the election. Russia's always had a fascination with America, you know, even as kind of relations of wax and wane for sure. The state media, at least, has definitely favored Trump. It's really been that case from the start. Even even as it's kind of uh, shifted from its obsession with Trump, kind of on on the eve of his election and after his election, to kind of like a, a strange kind of disillusionment, a kind of love hate relationship. But if you watch Russian state media, it's a pretty clear it's a pretty clear narrative, which is um, really focused on reiterating Trump's statements, covering events, kind of from from his perspective, and and ridiculing um, Biden. That's my sense anyway from, uh, you know, watching Russia 24, the kind of uh, round-the-clock flagship news channel. And I think on the streets, I mean, obviously people do watch um, Russian state TV, especially older people in Russia. Though, you know, the influence of state TV, this is another very interesting development in Russia, is uh, declining as, you know, the internet plays a larger role in people's lives. But I think, you know, most Russians, I think if you ask them, you'll get the line that, you know, whatever happens, U.S. politics will remain the same because it's always been the same. It's always, you know, against Russia. That's definitely the kind of strong sense in Russia, at least for the past four years. Maybe less so now than, you know, around Crimea. But the U.S., you know, has kind of shafted Russia. And, you know, it doesn't matter what president comes in. The politics will always be the same. So they are very interested in the U.S. and they always have been. I don't think there's an expectation that Biden, um, for his first term, that that things are going to change drastically um, in any way. And I also very much doubt that the average Russian is reading, you know, Biden's pronouncements on Russia and, you know, really trying to read the tea leaves and figure out, you know, what his likely approach to Russia would be. I think they're very much conditioned, you know, by kind of the more more superficial analyses um, out there, just because it's not their country. And um, as we mentioned before, I think they have more important things to be dealing with as well. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Absolutely been a pleasure going through these various topics with you. And, and I've certainly enjoyed, you know, your reporting. And I'm, I was so happy to find your work via Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. I just wanted to ask you a final question. What's next with your work over the next, uh, next couple of months? 
I want to definitely continue to do stories from the regions. You know, Moscow, there's, there's, there's a big understanding you can get about Russia from Moscow, but I think, you know, it's definitely important to to get out there as well. And now that um, things have calmed a little bit and uh, Russia doesn't seem to be, um, at least um, officially, doesn't seem to be instituting any second lockdown, um, we do have an opportunity to travel a bit more, obviously, you know, kind of keeping it safe. So, you know, I definitely like to do more of that. But yeah, maybe I'll have a more, uh, less superficial answer when we talk again. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. Thank you so much. It's It's been fascinating and I'm so grateful on my end for your reporting. It's it's so rare that I'm able to find great reporting that's that's done regionally in Russia as opposed to out of Moscow. So thank you for that and obviously for coming on. Sure. Well, thanks a lot, Zach. It was nice to be you know given the chance to talk a bit more about the stuff that we only really write about. So yeah, it was good fun and good luck with your studies. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.